table. My name is Rick Lyman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Church, and it's my privilege to share the Word of God with you here today. I want to, again, as Tara Beth did, welcome uh, those of you who are gathering here in our auditorium, also those that are worshiping with us at our Butterfield campus this morning, and our online audience. I don't know how many of you uh, pray for a white Christmas, for the, but those of you who are praying for a white Thanksgiving, can you dial it back a little bit? Because I got some snow yesterday. Were you out there? See that snow starting to come down? And to Tara Best's question a minute ago, when is it too early or when are you supposed to put a Christmas tree up for Carol and I? It's pretty much been Labor Day. Okay, so ours was up and decorated by mid-September this year. We were a little late. Sorry about that. But you know, as Tara Best said, we're focusing in these next two Sundays, today and next Sunday, on the understanding of how often we feel unloved and unwanted when in fact God himself has made it abundantly clear through his word how much he loves us and how much we belong in his presence. You know, since God created Adam and Eve way back when in the Garden of Eden, he has been telling us how very much loved and desired each one of us are. In fact, we are the apex of his creative work. And we have been made for a very high and holy purpose. Do you know that the scripture says why you were created? It says for his pleasure. Think about that. God enjoys you and he enjoys whom he has made you to be he loves us not for what we do or don't do we get caught up in that so often don't we but for who we are and who he's made us to be our aim in this series simple series is to deeply consider God's truth of his unconditional love for us and thus to be set truly free once and for all from the lies that tell us that he doesn't love us doesn't accept us and doesn't forgive us and thus be free to live into the abundant life Jesus said he came to this earth to bring to every single human being who would ever live. I'm going to encourage you to join me in a word of prayer just that we would invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us. He's inspired all the scriptures we'll read today. The Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all inspired by the Holy Spirit and that same spirit who inspired those words to be written is present here in this space and he's present in our lives. I also invite you to pray for me as, as I deliver God's word today that I'll do so in a way that honors him and brings great blessing to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing truth that you have woven through every chapter of the scripture that you really, really, really love us and desire us to be close to you. God, we pray that as we consider your words together today, that they will be illuminated not just in our minds, but they'll speak to our hearts, and that each and every one of us will hear and feel and sense the wooing of your spirit closer to you. We pray this th these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You know, it seems to me that most of us are pretty good at keeping up the appearance of having it all together. We like to draw people's attention to the good things about us, or at least the normal things about us. I suspect that uh, most of us don't reveal those deep struggles and difficulties that we have all that often. I really think that many of us feel most of the time unloved and unwanted more often than we feel loved and accepted in the world we live in. Some, for some of us here today, that's maybe all you ever feel is unloved and unwanted. But these lies and misconceptions have been in our minds for so long, I think, that we don't even know those scripts are playing in the background. We just live, as Terry Beth talked about, shame. We live under that dark cloud of shame. 
And though we need help, we need to get out from that. We're so busy or so wound up or don't believe it's going to do any good to try and change any of that that we just stay stuck in that place. Henry Nouwen put it so well when he said, so much of our pain remains hidden even from our closest friends. How often do you go up to someone you know and say, I'm anxious, I'm needy, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I need your help. The reason we don't do that is there's vulnerability in that confession, he says. It makes us look and feel fragile. So as self-reliant people, we would rather do it ourselves, rough it out on our own. But you know, he says we're foolish for trying. Why is it so hard for us to ask for help, even from God? Why is it so difficult to depend on others? Some might say, well, we don't want to bother other people with our problems. We're built on the notion that self-reliance is the way to go. But what we really need, each and every one of us, in God's original design is friendship. Somebody to care. Now and goes on to say a friend, he defines it this way, as someone who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief or bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. My dear ones, Jesus is that friend for every single one of us. He wants to be that first go-to person for you with everything that's going on inside of you. God loves you so much. I want you to think about this with me. He went way out of his way to seek you out personally because he wanted you. Yes, he wanted you close to him. He desired you to be in the ultimate inner circle with the triune God himself. You were very much wanted and desirable to God. You are no longer, none of us in Christ are on the outside looking in. God actually owns us now because he is personally, and I mean very personally, paid for our redemption, your redemption, the very blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. You are the prized possession of the king of kings who already had literally everything. Christmas is coming, and you know people that have everything, it's hard to buy something for them. God had everything, but he wanted you personally to know him and be in intimate relationship with him. And God takes very special care of those things that he loves, those people he loves and that belong to him. Speaking of prized possessions, some years back, my wife and I took a trip to the Caribbean. I think our daughter's about six months old or whenever that was. And the time, Carol was collecting Yadro figurines, which were all the rage. You remember those things back in the 70s and 80s? I'm not sure. They're going on eBay for five bucks now. But in any case, in that day, they weren't going for five bucks. We were down to the Caribbean, went into a little shop there and found this beautiful statue of Moses with holding the Ten Commandments, beautifully detailed and articulated. And somebody said, we got to have that. So we get it. And said to the owner of the shop, we have to ship this back. We're going to take this back in a plane. So we carefully packaged it in a big package, lots of padding, put strings around and a handle on the bag. So we got on the plane to head back to Chicago. We headed back to the cheap seats. We were back in coach seats. And 
The flight attendant came up to me, sir, would you like to, me to store that in a safe place on the trip so that when you get off, you can get it back? I said, sure. I don't want it to get messed with in any way. This is a fragile thing. So she made her way up you know, to the front of the plane, and we took off, and about an hour into the flight, I needed to use the restroom. I looked back. I saw the coach ones. I went to the, I think I'm going to go up to the first-class restrooms. So I walk up through the curtains. You know, it's always separated, and those, those sections are separated. And I walk up and I look down to my right, and there is Moses sitting in the big wide seat with a nice seat belt around him, <laughs> riding in first class. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, Moses could have fit in that coach seat back there, and I could have gotten a meal up here in first class. But Moses wasn't eating that day. But God has brought us into first class. We've been upgraded with the ultimate upgrade, my friends. But so many of us allow scripts and thought patterns to just run in our minds and our hearts that essentially tell us that we are unloved, and here's the key word, unlovable. We tell ourselves, why in the world would a pure, holy, perfect God want anything to do with me, let alone embrace me? I have so many faults and flaws that God couldn't possibly like me, let alone love me. We tell ourselves that God couldn't and never would actually desire and love and accept me into his family. I'll never belong there. But this stems from our own self-rejection, our feelings of self-condemnation. We're all really good at that somehow. And self-contempt. Essentially the lies that tell us that our badness, our flawedness, our sinfulness is stronger and more significant and powerful than God's goodness and his ability to transform us into something beautiful. This is the huge lie that so many of us have bought into and stayed trapped in. Because we feel unloved and rejected, even by God, we tend to isolate ourselves and withdraw from God and others, which only exacerbates that cycle. But listen to what the word of God tells us in 1 John chapter 4. He says to us in verse 4, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people, the ones on the outside, because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. And skipping down to verse 6, But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. You see, the amazing and beautiful truth is that God knows all the bad stuff about us very well. Way better than we do. He knows every minute detail. And instead of rejecting us, and instead of rejecting you and I and pushing us away from him, he has invited us, flawed sinners like us, to come close to him and to move into his house with him so we can see him close up and personally and be transformed by beholding and deeply considering his beauty and his glory and his nature and his character. You see, constant rumination about how bad we are will result in only one thing, feeling really bad all the time. It will never once change you for the better. But to look intently and deeply at Jesus will in fact transform us into the person we want to be and we know that we need to be. So when we were at our very worst, ignoring or running from God, he went ahead and bought you and made, him, made you his own possession. We see Jesus in the Gospels over and over again regularly reaching out to people who are, let's say, 
not the most noble or righteous people of their time. The way he interacted with them is so instructive with dishonest tax collectors who extorted money from the poor, like Zacchaeus, for instance, or possibly Matthew, or prostitutes and adulterers, soldiers who exacted heinous violence on others. He showed mercy to them. He didn't just tolerate them and say, you guys could sit in the back over there and just listen, but I'm going to leave you behind. He did the opposite. On the contrary, Jesus shared meals with them. He touched them. He allowed them to touch him. He forgave their many sins, even though God's own law commanded punishment. And he treated them as welcome guests in his circle of friends. You see, this welcoming, embracing love is what transformed many of these notorious sinners into his most devoted followers. That love has touched many of our lives already, hasn't it? It's touched my life and transformed it completely. But that's what God's all-embracing love does to broken people. It heals them, makes us feel as that we're part of God's purposes and gives us our sense of value that we matter to Jesus. Friends, you matter to Jesus today. Anytime you wonder if God could love you after all your screw-ups in life, just reread any of those stories and accounts in the Gospels. Start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They're in every one of the Gospels. And put yourself in the shoes, for instance, in John chapter 8, where a woman is caught in the act of adultery, which by God's own law said, you must stone the person. What Jesus did with her was amazing. He said, I'm not condemning you. Go and sin no more. Live a new kind of life. He set her free. I want you to listen afresh to probably the most famous and popular Bible verses in the entire scriptures. You see them at golf outings. The guy holding up the John 3.16 signs, right? They kind of avoid those on camera nowadays, but they're still out there. Listen to what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Let's unpack this a little bit. God, the greatest giver there could ever be, so loved, which was the greatest possible motive, the world and everyone in it, which was the greatest desperate need that he gave, which was the greatest single act ever, his only son, who is the greatest possible gift ever, that whosoever, which is the greatest invitation to any and all who would come, believes in him, which is the greatest opportunity, should not perish, which is the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life, which is the greatest joy that goes on forever. Friends, you and I belong to God in Christ right now, and we are his prized possession. He valued you and I, think about this, at the price of his own son's death. I want you to think hard about that. Is there any possible thing, for those that are parents or grandparents, any possible thing on earth that you would give up your daughter or your son or your grandchild, or your dearest companion for? Is there anything? No way in the world. I wouldn't give up my kids for anything. Not a chance. But friends, as we think about this, and let this sink in, 
God valued you and me the same value he placed on his own beautiful, wonderful, eternal son, Jesus Christ. He actually gave him for you. If that doesn't scream love at us, if that doesn't embrace our hearts and minds and let us know how much he loves us, nothing will. But that's what he did for us. You belong now in God's house. You have a key to the front door. You can rummage through his fridge figuratively to get something. It must be amazing stuff in God's fridge. You can go to the cabinet to get something else that you might like. You have the keys to God's Ferrari or Maserati or whatever he likes to drive. And you have an ATM and check writing access to God's bank account. I'm going to explain that more in a second. You actually have the power of attorney to use Jesus' name before the throne of God. Jesus gave it to us in John chapter 14. Look it up. You have to use it there, but you can also use it on earth over all the powers of darkness and the minions of hell. That is what being in God's house means. God made up his mind. He decided in his sovereign mind to send his son Jesus to save and redeem and restore you before you ever did one good thing or bad thing. In fact, he made this decision before he created Adam and Eve. God was thinking about you personally by name before he created the world. His house is now your home. Macrina Wiedekir puts it so well. She says, what is home? But that place where your name becomes precious. The place where your name finds its power. You find power when you're at home because it is there that you are loved, cherished, and accepted just as you are with all your frailty, fears, and flaws. What is home but that place where forgiveness stands at the door peers out the window and rushes down the steps to meet you. She goes on to say, you may be thinking, I've never felt that kind of home. Well, neither have I. But I've experienced it enough to know home's moments to know that it's possible. Sadly, so many of us never felt at home. But the call from God, she says finally here, is to come home, to embrace both our littleness and our greatness and to come home. Come home to our families, our friends, our church, ourselves, and most importantly, to God himself. I'm going to ask you to be honest with ourselves. We're going to ask ask a question. Does it make you a little uncomfortable or seem strange that you can enter God's house, his dwelling place, and sit down and relax and make yourself at home? You might think, that sounds unscriptural. God is on an unapproachable light. He's a holy God. I'll be vaporized if I come near him. Well, I've got some really good news for you. It's entirely scriptural. In Ephesians, the apostle Paul tells us that we're already, you and I in Christ, are already now, as we sit in this auditorium, seated in heavenly places in Christ, at the very right hand of God, the place of highest possible honor. That privilege, that most special proximity to God is never offered to any other created being in any way in the scriptures, including the angels. They don't get to sit next to God. They're around him. But you and I in Christ have been elevated to that place where we're seated with Christ. We don't have to yell for God to hear us. We can lean in and whisper, and he can whisper to us. That's what the scripture says. That's how close Jesus has brought us. But Jesus also tells us in Revelation, 
near the end of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the door of our hearts he's talking about. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door to me, I will come in and sit down and share a meal with you. Friends, because you belong to God personally as his prized possession, you now have all the benefits and blessings that belonging to him and being loved by him bring, including one more big thing. He has already made you his heir. You know, being someone's heir is kind of a big deal if they've got a lot of stuff. If they don't have much, you know, inherit 10 bucks or something, who cares, right? But God, who owns everything, who's rich beyond description, has made you one of his heirs. Let me ask you, how many of you in your will or trust your life insurance beneficiaries have put old friends, college roommates, buddies you played softball with in high school, or people that you played pickleball with in your will and your trust? How many of you do that? No, the answer is zero. No way. You think carefully, don't you? If you put one of those things, who do we want to put in here? It's the very limited group of people, the most special people to you, because you're sending one final message to them, right? That you care about them and love them. God has your name right now etched in stone in his will, and he's made you one of his heirs. Let that sink in. Listen to the provisions God has made for you in Christ as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance and folding you into the family of God. And you will never be orphaned For as he rises up within us, our spirits join with him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved father or Abba father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our inmost being, you are God's beloved child. And since we are true children, he goes on to say, we qualify to share all his treasures For indeed, we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, we also inherit all that he is and all that he has. We will experience being co-glorified with him, provided that we accept his sufferings as our own. Friends, the bottom line is God thought of everything and his plan for you is perfect and it's permanent and it cannot and will not fail. Max Lucado in the book Glory Days says these words, we are joint heirs with Christ. We share the same inheritance as Christ. Our portion isn't a pittance. We don't inherit leftovers. We don't wear hand-me-downs. We aren't left out in the cold with the distant cousins. Christ's portion is our portion. Whatever he has, we have And my friends, the reason God has brought us so close and into his household is so that we can actually be transformed into his likeness. Not by our works or effort, but here is the great secret of God's plan. By closely observing his glory, we are changed. He brought us as broken, sinful, flawed people, not trying to fix ourselves up close to look at the beauty of who he is. And by doing that, we are transformed. 2 Corinthians 3 puts it this way, and we all with unveiled faces, unashamed faces, 
beholding the glory, beauty of the Lord, our being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I capture it this way. When we get a true glimpse of the beauty of God, we can't take our eyes off of him. When we see something of unusual beauty or attractiveness, we just want to stare at it, right? Because it brings to us exhilaration in our lives. Profound beauty lifts us from ourselves and transports us to a place of wonder and amazement that just engulfs our whole being. That place of wonder, amazement, and exhilaration is exactly what it feels like to belong to God and to belong with God. I feel we need to learn or relearn this simple spiritual practice to spend the vast majority of our spiritual activity, by that I mean prayer and, and worship and contemplation and silence, looking at and into the person of Jesus. And to spend very, very little time focused on what's wrong or lacking or unacceptable or distasteful about ourselves. Belonging to God means that you and I have a front row seat in the gallery of heaven to see God in action. We do this primarily for looking at Jesus in the scriptures. I want you to do something next time you open up the Gospels. I hope you do that sometime soon and look at Jesus. When you observe the character of Jesus and the beauty and glory of Jesus revealed in the Gospels, keep looking at him. Instead of pulling back and bemoaning what is wrong or lacking, you and think, I'll never be like that. I can't do that. I, I just give up. Look at him. The secret is to affirm what God says about you. And learn to say this even out loud about yourself. One day, I will be just like that. Just like Jesus in every respect. And you have God's own word on that. We can begin to say, someday I will grow to be perfectly patient and tame my temper. I will grow to be thoughtful and considered and think of others above myself. All the time, I will grow to be compassionate and considerate of others all the time. I will grow to love everyone no matter what they've done or failed to do to me. I will grow to be like Jesus and forgive everyone who has hurt me and those who continually offend me. I will grow to the point where I can embrace those the world rejects. I will grow to be faithful in prayer, meaning my conversation with the Father will grow to be like Jesus. Every single character, quality, and trait that you see in Jesus as you behold him is your model, not to discourage you, but rather to encourage you. And I want to encourage you to begin to affirm that you are growing and going. I'm growing to be like Jesus every day as he transforms me, number one. And number two, I'm going to be exactly like Jesus and completely like him one day. We begin to say about ourselves, I can do what God says I can do, and I will be all that God has made me to be, just like Jesus. Why is this? John goes on to say in chapter 4 of 1 John, God is love. Whoever loves lives in God and God in them. This is how love was made complete in us so that we'll have confidence, not fear, on the day we face God in judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And there is no fear in love because perfect love, God's perfect love, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears and draws back is not made perfect in love. Friends, as we move to a close, 
I'm going to encourage us to do a couple things in response to the scriptures we've considered briefly here today. First, if you're hearing this message today and realize that Jesus has been knocking on the door of your heart, but you've been afraid or too ashamed to open the door to his love, I want you to understand he really does love you and he wants you to say yes to him so you too can join his family with all of these amazing blessings. Now, even this moment would be a great time to say yes and say, Jesus, come into my life. I know you love me. I understand. I want you. I need you. Please come in. And he will. And for everyone, if you're comfortable doing this, I encourage you to close your eyes and just soak up a short excerpt I'm going to read now from Max Lucado's wonderful book, God is With You Every Day. We never outgrow our need for the Father's love. We were wired to receive it. May I tell you just a little bit about that love? Listen closely. The words I give you are God's. Receive them slowly. Don't filter, resist, downplay, or deflect them. Just receive them. My child, I want you in my new kingdom. I have swept away your offenses like the morning clouds, your sins like the morning mist. I have redeemed you. The transaction is sealed. The matter is settled. I, God, have made my choice. I choose you to be part of my forever family. Let these words cement in your heart a deep, satisfying fear-quenching confidence that God will never let you go. You belong to him. To live as God's child is to know at this very instant that you're loved by your maker not because you try to please him and succeed or fail to please him and apologize, but because he wants to be your father. Nothing more. All your efforts to win his affection are unnecessary. All your fears of losing his affection are needless. You can no more make him want you more than you can convince him to abandon you. The adoption is irreversible. Accept your place as God's adopted child today. Amen.